0: sermon text is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Uh, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Uh, if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, reading verses 1 through 9, but we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9. Give ear to the word of God. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as John, uh, Jonas and Jombrus opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Well, This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, um, like I said, we've been going through this book for a while, and so some of us haven't been here for all of that. Um, At the beginning of this chapter, of chapter 3, Paul warns, as I just read, Timothy and us, uh, you know, Timothy was a young pastor. He was kind of Paul's apprentice or protege, pastor, so to speak. Paul had left him behind in emphasis to continue the ministry while Paul was gone. But he warns Timothy that in the last days, what does he say, there will be times of difficulty, or the King James puts it, there will be perilous times, you know, dangerous times in these last days. And we, we saw a number of weeks ago, we started looking at this text That the last days that Paul speaks of in verse 1 is not a reference to some far off time well off in the future that Timothy would not even live to see in this life. It was a reference uh, rather to, to the present time. The last days began at the first advent, the first coming of Christ. So that is to say the last days, this is bad grammar, but the last days is now. You and I are living in the last days, and the church has been living in the the last days and ministering and serving God in the last days since the coming of Christ some 2,000 years ago almost now. Uh, You might remember as we looked at that passage if you were here that Paul gives a rather specific reason why there will be times that were perilous or difficult in the last days for Timothy as he ministered the word of God. He, he said that these times of difficulty that, that, that Timothy and others would encounter in their ministry of the gospel uh, would, would come for a very specific reason. And what is that reason? It's the reason is the sinfulness of men. He says in verse 2, remember he says there will be perilous times. In verse 2 he says, for or because people or men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and that whole list of things uh, that Paul lists through verse, through verse 5. Now, the people that we're going to make these difficult times for the church and for the ministers of the gospel, the people that Paul has in mind here in this, in this letter are of two kinds, of two basic kinds. First, this is a description of false teachers, as we see in our text, who will seek to basically infiltrate the church and lead others astray. This is the group that Paul has in mind mainly in our text. He does deal with a little bit of the other group as well, but mainly it's the false teachers that he is dealing with here, and he describes them in verse 8 as being those who, quote, oppose the truth. That is one of the characteristics of false teachers. They oppose the truth. They don't just teach something different or new. They oppose. They actively oppose the truth of God. He goes on in verse 13, to describe them as, quote, evil men or evil people and imposters. And he says they will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's quite the the description of these false teachers. What are they? they? They themselves are false converts, and they are fake or false shepherds. In the Old Testament, if you would speak of these kinds of men, you would call them false prophets. People who claim to speak for God, that's what a prophet did, right? But they, these didn't speak for God. God didn't send these. Same thing is true uh, in some ways in the New, Te- New Testament uh, the age that we are in now. The second group of people that Paul deals with uh, throughout the rest of the letter are those who seek after and support such false teachers. So they're both related in some ways. Uh, this is the group that Paul is going to address to Timothy In the opening verses of of chapter 4, these are the kinds of people he tells about who will, quote, not endure or put up with sound teaching. There are many in the visible church today who fit that description. They will not endure it. They they can't stand it. They won't stand to hear uh, sound teaching. And, you know, I've said before, you might think if they don't like sound teaching... They just would avoid the church altogether. But it's not what they do, is it? It, it, It's counterintuitive. What does Paul say there that they are going to do in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4? He says they will accumulate or heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or lusts and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, into falsehoods. It's a... Kind of a startling thing to to hear him say. They won't avoid teaching. They'll heap up for themselves teachers. They will seek out, actively seek out teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, like a dog with itching ears. That's what people will, many people will do, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, we will get into that, Lord willing, in more detail when we come to chapter four uh, of our study. But for the time being, let us be warned to be careful. You and I need to be careful. Not to be deceived and not to be led astray by false teaching. By the grace of God, let you and I be determined not to be those who have itching ears and an inability to endure the truth. If whoever it is, myself or anybody else that you're listening to preach or teach, you know, we always use the Bereans as an example with good reason. Um, if what they're saying can be shown to be true to the word of God, whether it makes you uncomfortable whether it cuts against the grain of what you think already, whatever the case may be, if it can be shown that it's in the Bible and is what the Bible teaches, uh, let us be those who, who humbly accept and receive God's word and not uh, walk away from it and wander off into myths and be led astray. You know, It's not without reason that the Bible gives us, at, at times, some very strict admonition and warning about false teaching and the false teachers themselves who peddle it. Uh, 2 John, the second epistle of John, it's just one chapter long, but verses 9 through 11, it says this. Everyone who goes on ahead, you know, kind of wanders off, goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. You know, they're not in the ballpark, so to speak. They're not close but no cigar. They don't have God, no matter what they profess. They don't have God Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here it is. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Don't even give them a greeting. Why? For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's like don't even shake their hand. You know, that goes against everything we, we, we are typically taught to do. You know, we're, we're taught what's the 11th commandment. Everybody knows it, even if you've never heard of it, be nice. It's the unofficial. It's in the white spaces somewhere between uh, verse 17 and 18 in Exodus 20. It's not really, but, but that's what we think. We, oh, you know, it's not very nice. That's going to hurt my witness. If somebody is teaching a false gospel, don't even shake their hands. That's kind of what John is saying. Don't greet them. Don't let them in your house. Don't welcome them. Don't say, hey, brother, I know we're, we disagree on a few things. No, he, he says if you do that, you take part in his wicked works. We need a, 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 a change of thought in how we view false teaching and heresy, especially a false gospel. So let us not partake or share in the works, the wicked works of deceivers, or by tolerating or welcoming them not into our homes not into our churches not into our pulpits and may those of us who are called by God as elders in God's church let us be careful to keep a watch over the flock to defend Christ's sheep from the wolves who come in dressed in sheep's clothing that's you know that topic is i would say it's about half of second timothy he spends time dealing with it i mean think about that think about second timothy is paul's last epistle as far as we know before he was martyred. He tells Timothy in chapter 4, I'm not going to be around long. I'm already being poured out as a, as a, as a drink offering, so to speak. He knew his days on this earth were, were more and more numbered. And so you you know, when you write your last words to someone, you pick what's most important. What does Paul spend half the letter dealing with? You've got to watch out for false teaching. Here's how you deal with false teaching. Beware of such things. Well, the first thing I want to look at this morning that Paul directs our attention to in verses 6 through 9. It doesn't tell us everything, but it does give us some idea of the methods of false teachers. The methods of false teachers, how they go about doing what they do. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, what do you notice about what Paul says there? What do you notice about the methods or tactics of these false teachers? You'll notice they don't do what they do out in the open. They're not up front, they're not out in the open. They, their tactics are that of, of stealth and cunning. What does he say? They, they creep or sneak into households, they don't come through the front door, so to speak. You could say they even seek to operate behind the scenes rather than in the usual way of openly professing their teaching before the church where the elders are present to guard the flock against false teaching. So they're sneaks. They're dishonest in doing that. If they were honest, they'd be open and upfront about what they're, what they're trying to do. Secondly, they, they prey on the weak. You know, when you, when you watch, I don't know if anybody watches his old nature shows, but, you know, what do they always show? There's a, an injured animal in the back, and that's the one that gets picked off? That's the picture Paul is using here. That's what, there's a reason that the Bible talks about false teachers being wolves. Some of the worst wolves you will see in our day have the nicest smiles. They have the flashiest clothing. They present themselves, even as Satan does, as an angel of light. But don't let the the nice smile fool you. They're they're not there to minister to you. They're there to take from you. That is their whole reason for existing. They prey on the weak. They look for every opportunity to insinuate themselves into the good graces of those who are often ill-equipped to discern their errors. Verse 6, Paul says they capture weak women. It's It's kind of a military term. It's taking someone captive even in some ways against their will, taking them captive like a prisoner of war. Paul, Paul doesn't use the word wolf here, but that's kind of the picture he's painting, isn't it? A wolf attacking someone uh, who is wounded. It's a picture of a wolf stalking prey. That's, what, that's the real view or picture of what these false teachers are. John Stott, always helpful in, in, in these things, he writes the following about this text. John Stott says, at all events, their method was not direct and open, but furtive, secretive, cunning. They were sneaks, using no doubt the back door rather than the front. These tradesmen of heresy, like traveling salesmen, these tradesmen of heresy would insinuate themselves into private homes and households. Choosing a time when the menfolk were out, presumably at work, they concentrated their attention on weak women. This expedient comments Bishop Ellicott was as old as the fall of man for what did the serpent do? For the serpent first deceived Eve. It was also employed by the Gnostics, a first century, second century heresy, and has been the regular ploy of religious commercial travelers, that is door-to-door salesmen of false religion, right? Um, Right up to and including the Jehovah's Witnesses of our own day. What's the Bible say? There's nothing new under the sun. This is the way they've been doing it since day one. Why? Literally. Well, day six maybe. Um, Because it works. It works. Satan, the serpent, went to Eve first when Adam wasn't there with her and deceived her. Now, Adam wasn't deceived. He sinned with a high hand. But that's how he got it done. And they've been doing it the same way in many ways ever since. Just as the serpent tempted and deceived Eve apart from Adam, so also many of those who would do his bidding in opposing the truth and spreading false teaching and heresy likewise seek to corrupt an entire household at times uh, away from the truth by preying on its weak members. Apart from those who might be there to defend the family from such things while they're away. So give no audience or ear to those who would do such things. These are sometimes hard things to hear. Mothers and sisters in the faith, uh, don't be easy to lead astray. If someone tries to, to deceive you to, to bring you a teaching you are not familiar with or you don't recognize, uh, tell, tell those teachers, whoever they may be, whether they be at your door or somewhere else, tell them they can run their teaching by your husband first if you're married or your father first if you're in your father's household or even pastor elders or your pastors. Say, so that's a very interesting teaching you're bringing to me. Let's, let's see what my pastor happens to think about it. You may not see them again. That's how that works. It's, it's an amazing thing how often uh, one of these cults comes by the house and has in the past come by the house, uh, and they, they learn there's a, a person in the house who knows their Bible, even sometimes in our case a pastor, not that that's always a guarantee, uh, how fast they go. They, they beat feet. They leave pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's said by Paul in 1 first, first Corinthians 14.5. Paul talks about, and this, this is one of those verses that offends many in our day, but it's God's word. Uh, he tells wives to, to ask their husbands at home if they want to learn something. If they want to know something about a teaching, it says, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, that may imply a lot of things, but what does it imply about husbands and wives? It implies that husbands, men, you should be people who can lead your home. You should be people who know your Bible and are seeking to know the word of God. So when you hear false teaching, you can protect your family. You know, you are to protect your, your wife, your children uh, from danger, and that includes spiritual danger. It's not just keeping them safe from somebody breaking in the house. It's keeping them safe from false teaching and heresy uh, of, false, of false gospels. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you watch, whether online or otherwise. You know, there, there is more than one way in our day to sneak into a household. And we have to be careful of the things that we allow into our homes in this regard. Likewise, fathers and brothers in the faith. Are you equipped to to discern truth from error? Are you growing in your ability to discern truth from error? Are you able to spot the wolf dressed in sheep's clothing so that you can protect your household from such things? If you're not even married yet, but you're seeking marriage, are you are you becoming equipped to do those kinds of things? If not, why not? Mm-hmm. Are you making it your aim to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as Peter tells us to do in 2 Peter 3.18? That should be our aim. We should make it our aim, not just for that reason, but among other things, to be able to protect our homes from spiritual threats as well as physical ones. Now, here's the elephant in the room. Uh, Why does Paul specify weak women here? And if you have the King James, it's worse, right? Uh, King James, what does it say? Anybody have one? Silly women. You know, translating is hard. <laughs> you know, just put it that way. But weak or silly women, why does, he, why does he mention them in particular? Now, one thing to notice, Paul doesn't say he's not speaking of all women here. He doesn't say all women. He says weak women or literally it's little women. I don't know if that has anything to do with the title of that book by the same name, but it's, it's a diminutive in, in the original Greek. It's, it's a way of saying little women. It doesn't mean short women, right? It means small-minded, simple-minded, uh, weak women. Um, there are women and there are weak women or little women that fit the description that Paul gives here, and Paul isn't speaking of all women in general here in this way. Uh, but false teachers are always on the lookout for the weak. They look for an easy target. And what characterizes these little women or weak women that Paul talks about here? Look what he says about them. They are, quote, burdened or weighed down with sins and led astray by various passions or lusts, always learning. It's not like they don't want to learn. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. How do they spot the weak women? That's it. That's what they look for. That is a description of the one's. That they seek to prey on. They're weighed down with sins. And notice what he says. They are led astray by various lusts. In other words, they're already straying from the truth. And these false teachers see that and they go, oh, i just got to give them a little, bit, a little nudge and push it further. And maybe I can capture the whole household if I capture the wife, if I capture the weak, the weak woman in the house. Um, It's much easier to to deceive those and lead them further astray if they're already being led astray by their own passions and lusts. That's what they look for. No doubt this is probably a very similar idea to what Paul has in mind in chapter 4, verse 3, where he speaks of those having itching ears, and what do they do? They accumulate for themselves teachers to do what? Or who do what? To suit their own lusts. In other words, Here's the lust they're, they're stumbling into and captive by, and they look for teachers who will make that okay, that will make that acceptable to not repent of whatever those things are. It's okay. It, no big deal. That's what they look for. And so that's what the false teachers will look for themselves. Sad to say, I hate to say things like this, but there will never fail to be an audience among some professing Christians for any form of teaching that allows them, gives them an, a cover for going on and living in sin and, unbl- and with impunity. There's never a shortage of people looking for a teacher that will give them license to sin. If you want to build a church fast, there's one way to do it, uh, but it's not the right, not the right way. Now there is a kind of learning. Notice these these weak women. It's not like they're not trying to learn at least something, right? There's a kind of learning that is sub Christian. There is a kind of learning and a desire for learning new things that does not lead to edification and growth in grace. Dot again uh, writes the following, noting that same bishop he mentioned. He says, It was no love of truth that impelled them to learn, however, but only a morbid love of novelty. Such women weak in character and intellect are an easy prey for door-to-door religious salesmen. Sometimes the, the desire to learn isn't in a right way. And it's, it's more about learning novel things or having the inside scoop, uh, theologically speaking, that others don't have. And that goes for men too. Many of the cults, I would almost say all of the cults, what do they do? They prey on your ego. They say things like, oh, you know, those other Christians out there, they don't know this they don't know this thing, but you know you and me, we're the smart ones. That's a cult. If you find yourself in a church like that, get out. Go someplace else. That is, that, that is the motive. That is the manner uh, of cults, or it's a cult waiting to happen when they talk to you in such a way. John Calvin says this. They learn because they are curious and have restless minds, but in such a way that they never reach any certainty of truth. So in and of itself, a desire to know something, a desire to learn is no mark of grace. We, we need to be coming to a knowledge of the truth and not tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching, as the Bible says as well. Well, the second thing for us to look at is not just the methods of false teaching, but the mark of false teaching. How do you recognize it? And this we won't say everything this morning, but how do you, how do you recognize it and know it? When you see it, what, what is the main thing about it? Well, Paul describes it in terms of at least one thing here, and that is false teaching in many ways is characterized by a settled opposition to the truth. It's characterized by a settled opposition to the truth. Just as the weak women in verses 6 and 7 are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, even so these false teachers are those who do what? In verses 8 and 9, he says they oppose the truth. Verses 8 and 9, he says, just as, I don't know how to pronounce the names, Jonas and Jambres, or maybe it's Janus and Jambres, um, opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, these men in, in Timothy's day. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, so... What does Paul do? Paul gives uh, Timothy an example from the Old Testament of the same kind of thing that he has in mind here. He draws his example from the Old Testament, from the days of Moses. Notice also, when you think about that, he's implying and really teaching, and I'm sure Timothy knew this, that Timothy and others who minister God's word were to take examples from the Old Testament to follow the way they do things. The prophets of the Old Testament had much to teach those who would teach God's word in our day as well. In fact, uh, one of the Puritan writers, uh, Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book, which the title may sound odd to you until I explain it. He wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. And you might think, oh, is he Pentecostal? Was he, was he giving brand new revelation? Was he predicting future events? No. Prophesying is a synonym really for preaching. And that's the way he used it. What what was the main thing that characterized a prophet in the Old Testament? Most of us probably think telling the future. Did they foretell the future about Christ and things? Certainly. But what's the main thing they did was more basic than that. What's the phrase you think of? It's King James language. We talked about this yesterday at the men's breakfast. When you hear a prophet, what did they say basically? Thus saith the Lord. They said what God would have them say. Whatever they said when they said, Thus saith the Lord, if they're a true prophet, is God's word. It may involve the future, but most of the time it didn't. Most of the time it was repent. Repent before I come in judgment. That was the main message of the prophets. And so that is what preaching really is. That's what prophesying really is. It's saying, Thus saith the Lord from his word. Um, so Paul gives that example from the Old Testament. Now, here it is. Um, maybe you're asking yourself, who in the world were Jonathan and Jambres? And I will tell you with certainty that I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's a verse in the Bible besides this one that gives us their, them by name and mentions them. But church tradition, and that's what we're left to go with, has it that these were the court magicians of Pharaoh, the ones that tried to duplicate the miracles and signs of of Moses, remember, he made his staff into a snake. The miracle, and what did they do? They made their staffs into snakes. Show us something else, Moses. Your God isn't the only one around here. And then what does Moses' staff do? His snake ate theirs. You know There was a limit at some point, but they tried basically. Why did they do that? They wanted to try to make it as if Moses wasn't really from God. So when Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve thee. That's what the Lord says to you. They could say, well, anybody can turn a stick into a snake. Anybody can do all these things. And so they tried to deceive Pharaoh. And in many ways, you could say that they, that they did. But they, what, you know, I think it's a re- there's a reason that Paul picks them in particular. He could have picked any of the false prophets. He could have picked uh, anybody he wanted to do. But why does he pick Jonas and Jambres? Because they were fakes. They tried to mimic the true prophet of God, Moses. He's saying the same kind of thing happens now. And what were they doing? They were opposing the truth and opposing Moses. And you're going to run into the same thing in your day. Pastors, elders, myself and others in our day need to be aware of that. That the same kind of thing will happen now. We shouldn't be shocked if we find opposition to the preaching and teaching of the truth of God's word. So Paul is implying that such men in Timothy's day and our day are fakes they imitate and ape the true ministers of the gospel in such a way as to deceive others and lead them astray from the truth. They oppose the message of Moses to keep Pharaoh from, uh, from, from listening to God. They were sent by the evil one in many ways to deceive. Now, the, the comparison Paul uses here implies that the false teachers in Timothy's day and ours, while giving the outward impression of being ministers of God, have only, as Paul says in verse 5, the appearance of godliness, but are in fact peddlers of an entirely different religion altogether. They say they're most of the cults do the same thing. Mormons, oh, we're Christians? If you ask a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, are you a Christian, what are they going to say? Absolutely, brother. Oh, do you believe in the Trinity? Oh, uh, sort of, no. Yes, we believe in God. We use the Bible. But they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't believe... The one true living God. They seek to deceive by looking as if they are the same as the, the faithful teachers of God's. Where now Paul's condemnation of these false teachers includes at least three things in our text. The first is we've already mentioned they oppose the truth, and in doing that they oppose God Himself. And why is that? Because it's God's truth that they are found to be opposing. They aren't opposing Timothy. When you know ultimately they're not opposing. Paul's thoughts or Timothy's thoughts or our thoughts, they're, they're, they're opposing God because they're opposing the truth of God. Think about the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Think about the ways that he opposed the truth and the same kinds of things are said in at least an implication by false teachers today. What did, what did he say to Eve in Genesis 3.1? Has God really said? That has been repeated throughout the history of the church in more ways than you can possibly imagine. Did God really say that? Did God really say X, Y? Pick, pick a doctrine, and they'll cast doubt upon it. Also, you will not surely die. I mean, it's mimicking the very words of God. Sometimes it's questioning God's words. Sometimes it's an outright denial. God said, in the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, right? In the day you eat of it, you shall what? You shall surely die. He uses the same words. You shall not surely die. God's God's pulling a fast one on you. That's what they do. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's right out in the open. Even so, false teachers today question and deny God's word in opposition to the truth. The second thing, and they're not unrelated, the second thing that Paul says of them is they are corrupted in mind. Their brains are rotten. By their unbelief and false teaching. Their unbelief, their sin, their hardness of heart in teaching such things has led to, in a sense, the rotting of their minds. Their false teaching in opposition to the truth of God, uh, in this case, it's a settled disposition. This is not the occasional accidental slip-up here and there. This is somebody who their settled state of being is in opposition to God's truth. That is what they, they do. The well, so to speak, of their teaching is so poisoned as to be unfit for human consumption. You know, we, we don't usually, thankfully yet, maybe if the economy gets worse, uh, we, we don't usually dig for food in trash cans, right? We don't usually seek our food and, well, you know, there's still some good stuff in here. Um, we Don't make excuses for false teachers. Don't say, well, they're a little iffy on this, that, and the other thing. But in the things on culture, they're great. Things on politics or, you know, pick pick something else. They're really great on this, but they're a little fuzzy on justification. It's a no-go. You get the gospel wrong, the whole thing's poisoned. You don't want to be influenced by anything of that kind. Third thing, Paul says, because of all this, such men are, quote, disqualified regarding the faith. He doesn't say, although he does inc- it does imply this, he doesn't just say, they're disqualified for ministry. Right? They're disqualified regarding the faith itself. The Christian faith. They've got nothing to do with it. They have no business about it. They have, in other words, it's a picture of, when it says disqualified, it's a picture of being tested and shown to be wrong. Tested and proven to be false. That is what Paul says about them. They're disqualified regarding. The faith, now no doubt that many in our day, as well as in Paul's day, have numerous, quote-unquote, qualifications for, quote-unquote, ministry. And they'll be glad to show you these qualifications in many ways to get you to listen to them. They can point to, for instance, their degrees hanging on the wall. They can point to their worldly success in what they're doing. They can point to the, the, the fact that they have lots and lots of followers and those things can often be very persuasive, can't they? You know, I, I forget the saying, uh, a million Elvis fans can't possibly be wrong. You know, all these people are following these people. There must be something to it. Uh, I, I can tell you this, and you can disregard this. This is my opinion, so feel free to disregard and, and ignore me on this. But, you know, whenever I see a very, very popular Christian book in our day, I see red flags pop up immediately. I hate to say that I wish that wasn't the case. You go to a Christian bookstore and you see this bestseller. In our day, most of the time, these things that gain quick popularity involve heresy. I can think of a number of them right off the top of my head. Remember The Shack? If you've read it, I hope you've forgotten it. If you haven't read it, please don't read it. It teaches outright heresy about God. It teaches blasphemous things about the Trinity. And yet, how many millions of copies did that book sell? Every airport you walk through, that book was prominently displayed. Oh, look, a Christian book! Yay, Christianity's finally getting its uh, it's getting some some uh, coverage out here. The world is going to notice. No, it's not because that book wasn't Christian. It, it, it claimed to be. The writer of the book claimed it was, but it wasn't. There are many such things, not just books, but ministries and ministers that fit that same description. They are utterly disqualified or disapproved. And not just on one or two subjects. They are, you know, Again, Paul's not talking about somebody who's just a little off here and there. Now, they just need to be kind of taught and, and get the rough edges shaved, shaved off and fixed. They are disqualified regarding the faith itself. This is not just a judgment on their own personal faith, but on their grasp and teaching of the Christian faith and the truth of it in its entirety. They're teaching something entirely different. When push comes to shove, then the Christian faith. That is what Paul is describing. There are there are no true ministers of God, regardless of what their titles and attainments may be. That's what that's what these people are. No matter what they say. You know, in, in Paul's day, I think it's in Second Corinthians, he talks about. If you can imagine a title like this, in English, it's translated like super apostles, and they had their qualifications. They had their letters of, of commendation. And what does Paul say? Paul boasts in his persecutions. He's like, I'll show you my my qualifications. I've been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead, thrown in prison, you know, naked, cold, starving, all these things that that he talks about, in danger from false brethren, all this stuff. Paul's like, you want my qualifications? I suffer for the gospel. And then he says, you, he to the Corinthians, you all are an epistle written not with pen and ink. In other words, your conversion is the seal of my ministry. That's what Paul said to them. He didn't need a letter from anybody. He had their conversion, the work of God through them. But these men uh, that fit Paul's description here are unfit to teach you the first thing about the Christian faith. They are strangers to the Christian faith and they are peddling a false religion altogether. Well, last but not least, uh, not just the, the method and the mark of false teaching, but thankfully the folly of opposing the truth Paul tells us here. Paul gives us kind of the good news to, to measure out the bad news in some ways. He gives us the assurance of truth's victory over error. He encourages Timothy and us by reminding us that the folly of opposing the truth and the certainty of the defeat of those who do so. Look, look at verses uh, verse 9 again. He says, But they, these false teachers, they will not get very far. Why? For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men, that, that is, Jonathan and John Bruce. In other words, they will be finally shown to be opposing God. God will make it plain that they are in opposition to the truth. Um, God will see to it in His time that such men are exposed for what they really are, and their folly, or that word means kind of to be mindless, that their mindlessness in opposing God, His truth, and the ministers of God's gospel will become plain to all. It may not happen as soon as we'd like it to. They may not get their cup up, or come up and so to speak, uh, as soon as we might wish it to happen. But in due time, God will make it evident who has been sent by him and who has not to minister his word. Malachi 3.18, we looked at that book not that long ago. It feels longer, it's probably longer ago than I, than I think it is. But Matthew, or Malachi 3.18 talks about, God says there, he's going to make a distinction in other words, he's going to make it plain, the distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God has said he will do that. He'll certainly do that at the last judgment, but I think the promise there means, even in this life, at some point, God will make it plain to everybody who wants to see and who has the eyes to see who has been approved by God and who has not. One more quote by John Stott. He puts it well when he says this, there is something patently spurious about heresy and something self-evidently true about the truth. You know, God's word, the Bible, what's the biggest proof of it that it's his word? It's self-attesting. It's, it's like one of the Puritan writers said something about it's like the beams of the sun proving that the sun is there. You don't need light to see the light. You don't need anything else to know that this is the truth of God. ...that it's God's word, but he says there's something self-evidently true about the truth. Error may spread and be popular for a time, and it is, but it will not get very far. In the end, it is bound to be exposed, and the truth is sure to be vindicated. This is a clear lesson of church history. Numerous, Numerous heresies have arisen, and some have seemed likely to triumph, but today... They are, of, they are largely of antiquarian interest. God has preserved his truth in the church, and that, that is true. So be encouraged. You know, If I had been a better uh, pastor in preparing my sermon, I would have had this song as their closing hymn, but I don't. But uh, I didn't think of it till too late. But uh, Martin Luther, the one song you probably know by him, if you know any of them, it's based on Psalm 46. It's the, Psalm of the, the hymn of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God. One of the lines in that hymn goes something like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed what? His truth to triumph through us. God has willed his truth to triumph through his people. And it will most certainly do so. And so what should you and I do as believers? If you're a Christian here this morning, what what would we have you to do? Read and study God's word. Attend faithfully on the preaching and teaching of God's word in a faithful church. I'll say I'll add this familiar familiarize can't say the word uh, yourself thoroughly uh, with the creeds, confessions and catechisms of the church. Now, why do I say that? What do those things do? They not only teach you the basic truth of God's word. uh, They instruct you in the truth, but they also act as a safeguard they safeguard you against error, as so many of the old errors and heresies tend to come back in recycled form. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, the early church dealt with the heresy of Arianism, that they, they taught this heresy that Jesus wasn't God. Well, guess what? We have Jehovah's Witnesses in our day that teach a form of Arianism. Same, same heresy, different face, different clothes. Uh, but if you familiarize yourself with the Apostles' Creed, for example, the Nicene Creed, Especially, you will have a very hard time or the false teachers will have a very hard time trying to persuade you against the deity of Christ. If you understand the shorter catechism and the basic teachings of the Christian faith, you will be protected and safeguarded against a great many errors. But first and foremost, read your Bibles, become students of God's word, and this will protect you in many ways as well as build you up in the faith. So I know this is a week late Uh, I don't know if you're into New Year's resolutions or not. If you aren't, that's probably better. Uh, But if you are into that sort of thing, make it your aim this year in 2023 in all of these things to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and to grow in godliness in him. Amen.